0: Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have come, that you have walked amongst us, you have taught us, you've showed us, you have um, given us an example by which we live. Holy Spirit, we invite you now, we pray to speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, the theme in the worship this morning, and if we picked up on it, was surrender. Just, just laying our lives down for you. And that is absolutely appropriate, especially as we talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Pray, God, now you'd come, you'd speak, you would release, you would transform, you would challenge, you'd convict, whatever would be, God. But we ask that you would have full control in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. For those of you who are visiting with us, we want to say welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to wrap up a series we started a long time ago, it feels like we haven't stopped talking about this series. We've been looking at the seven deadly sins. We took a little bit of break over at Christmas time, but uh, we're going to wrap it up this morning. and going to talk about, uh, to summarize um, kind of where we've been. Let's recap what we talked about last week, first of all, kind of make sure that we're all on the same page. Last week, we looked at this idea of lust. And I said to you that the simple definition of lust is having a self-absorbed desire for an object, person, or experience. When we are in lust, we place the object of our desire above all things in our lives. As we've been walking through the seven deadly sins, the important part of it is not to say um it's whether i'm angry or whether i'm lazy it's 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 a multi-layered uh issue and so when we looked at lust it wasn't just simply about uh, a sexual desire or a desire a physical desire but it's about the things that can the pleasures in our lives that can kind of ru- uh, rule our lives we looked at um is quote by matteo sol um to the mind that is asleep and to the soul that is young pleasure equates to happiness if we think about our culture today we think about north american culture or perhaps western culture in general pleasure or happiness or distraction, these are the things that drive us. And because these are the things that drive us, these are the things that orient us in our lives. And without realizing it, we can give into it. So you can leave um, uh, the topic of lust and say, well, I'm not that. But if it, you are pursuing pleasure, if that's your highest goal, if that is the thing that you look forward to the most, then that is what's going to distract you uh, from that. We looked at the answer to it and it was kind of from Galatians uh, 5 and it was really this idea of the Holy Spirit and it's kind of a setup to kind of our next series actually a little bit. And we talked about, in Galatians 5, Paul talks about this idea of, of, of fighting against the flesh, warring against the flesh. And, he, and, he, and throughout it, though, he kind of gives us steps with the Holy Spirit. He says, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And we said that the Holy Spirit has to walk alongside of us. And that is like a teacher, like an advocate, like a mentor. He has to walk in front of us. And so that where he takes us, that is, that's the path that we should follow. And finally, we said keep in step with the Spirit. That's the pace right? Staying in step with the Spirit wherever the Holy Spirit would take us. So that's what we talked about last week, and that wrapped up the seven deadly sins. And this morning, I want to conclude the series by kind of pulling it all together and, and talking about one of the reasons why I chose this series. But before we do that, let's talk about Hawaii. On January 13th at eight o seven 7 a.m., uh, this warning went out on the cell phones. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of text messages and a lot of kind of garbage and all that. But if this one popped up, Ballistic missile inbound, seek shelter immediately. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was looking at my phone, I was like, huh, I'm about to die. Um, And and also, I think it was kind of funny with it is that people are running for shelter in their hotel room. I'm pretty sure if a ballistic missile was heading your way, the hotel is not going to do anything. Like, if I told you you had 13 minutes left to live, there is a missile heading towards you, what would you do? Like, what, what, what would you feel? What would you experience? We saw some of the reactions from Twitter um, and from different news or um, social media outlets, but how people responded. Um, Valerie Bears said this, for a very scary 10 minutes, I and many ha- others had to contemplate the unimaginable. And that's absolutely true, right? Like, like, you just can't even think of, like, when you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, this morning I'm going to encounter a ballistic missile or I'm going to be in a place where a ballistic missile might have encountered. CNN, a CNN producer said this, describes receiving the false alarm in Hawaii. We got alerts on our phone. We opened our sliding glass door to look out onto the beach, which, by the way, may not be a great idea. Um, we saw probably 10 different families running, not walking, back to the room. Uh, Kirby uh, Crackle says, Talk to loved ones in Hawaii. The reality of the situation is everyone thought they were going to die for 40 minutes. Let that sink in. Extremely traumatizing, and please send your love to everyone. And I love what this one person said. It's been confirmed. If a missile was incoming, we'd spend our last moments tweeting about it. At least we know. Right? And that's sad but true. These individuals had no idea that this was, this was false. All they knew is a ballistic missile was inbound. And the island of Hawaii, I don't know how big it is. I don't know what the circumference of a nuclear explosion would be. But it feels like no matter where you'd go, unless it was like underground shelter upon shelter, that's it. It's over. Now, the reason I think I find this so fascinating to me is because in our lives today, there is a sense that sometimes we can feel like we're going to live forever or our actions don't, like we're going to wake up in the morning and it's all going to go the same. Whether how boring or dreary or exciting your life is, you wake up in the morning thinking, well, it's pretty much going to go the same way as it's gone every morning. And that these individuals woke up, you know, in Hawaii and were greeted by this text message. And in that one moment, they had to say something. My life might be over. My life might, there is nothing I can do. There's no, there's no actions I can take. I didn't cause this. Obviously, I didn't, I didn't invite this. But yet I'm now being told that my life is over. And in that moment, some of the people were saying, like, they, they, one person said, one, um, one blogger said that um, he had the, the scary realization that he'd never thought about life after this life. He never thought about what life would be after this life, or if it existed, the metaphysical, spiritual, supernatural, however you want to look at it. He never thought about it. You live in Hawaii. You know, that's, you, you, you kind of live in the best place on earth almost. Uh, you know, the next best place would be Elmira, I think, but um, no, not necessarily. Um, but you, 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 you live in this place that's so idyllic, so beautiful, so like, you know, just gorgeous. And you then have to be, you have to come to the realization that your life might be over. Now, the reason I wanted to start the, series, the end of the series off with this is because as we look at the seven deadly sins, I, I want us to have this moment of asking ourselves, as we've looked at these seven areas of our lives that sin can kind of creep into and um, blunt what we are in God and or, 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 or dampen uh, what we are in God, where are we spiritually? Where, how does our lives look spiritually? Um, Ryan Griffith says this, says this about the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins, pride, envy, anger, greed, sloth, gluttony, lust, are not so called because they are the most lethal. All sin is deadly. The reason the church has so long liked to talk about these seven sins rather than 77 or 777 is because they represent the rest. More precisely, these seven sins have been considered the source of species of sin, root-level sins from which a host of other sins, Uh, spring. So the seven deadly sins were so categorized, so looked at that way, because these sins are where every other sin um, takes place. And so the reason the church has looked at this historically, and the very first sermon we looked at where these kind of came from, It's because these sins represent the seven areas of our lives that if we don't watch out, if we're not careful, these are the areas of our lives that can actually be um, dead inside and and pulled towards. Remember I said to you that the seven deadly sins were meant to be spiritual diagnostic tool to understand our hidden nature. So whether you are thriving in your faith or if you have a toe tag in your spiritual life, these sins are a way of taking a look at it. If it's a diagnostic tool, you say to yourself, where am I in my life that these things have crept in? Remember I said to you that the seven deadly sins holds a mirror up to our face and says, you may not realize it, but this is the areas of your life that perhaps might be um, distracted. And that's the reason why we've looked at the series is to say, what parts of our lives do we struggle with? What parts of our lives do we, do we say is, 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 is in need of the Holy Spirit, in need of God's uh, renewal, God's, God's moving? Um, Here's what we're going to look at this morning as we kind of wrap the series up. And this is a question that I have asked since, I can, uh, since I've been a Christ follower, even earlier than that in the church. How is it someone can be saved and not look much like Jesus? This is a very interesting question because if we read the statistics, if we look at the world around us, and Western culture especially, the church is on a decline, is diminishing the cultural footprint, however you want to approach it, however you want to view it, um, the influence of the church today or Christianity in our culture is diminishing. And I would say to you, it's an opportunity, but also a reality, right? I remember when I grew up in this, uh, the church that I was in, uh, I, I don't know why my mom thought it would be a great idea to take me to an annual business meeting. I, it, I, I, nothing about that excites me at all. Right, but I was there. And and one of the primary conversations in the business meeting was changing the carpet. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about church life, apparently this was way more uh, of a serious decision than anyone could imagine—not financially, but because of the tradition. And so I remember sitting there, watching men and women scream at each other, crying, weeping. My grandfather put that carpet down. This carpet, I've I was like, and then they're like, no, we need new carpet. People were freaking out. And I just remember sitting there as a child going, what is going on? How how is it possible that carpet could could, uh, get such reactions from people? And I remember that was kind of my first point of realization of saying, it's maybe because perhaps people have got distracted by the things that are unimportant. And this question is the question we're going to answer today. How is it someone can be saved and not look much like Jesus? I've been a pastor for 20 plus years, uh, and I planted this church uh, three and a little bit years ago now. And I confess to you, this is still the question I ask: Is how can someone attend a church or be a Christ follower, and nothing about them is transformed? Nothing about them is changed. Nothing at all about them looks like Jesus. Why is it that we get so distracted by the things that don't matter? that we forget about the thing that does matter, and that's the mission that Christ has given us. And so the question I want to answer this morning is this question, and we're going to take a look at it as we kind of wrap this series up. So when we talk about the seven deadly sins, we said that these are the seven areas that we have. Now, for those of you who perhaps may have missed this, um, the sermon series and the notes are on our website, so you can go back and listen to them. We talked about this idea of pride, and we said that pride is the gateway. Pride is the door by which every sin enters into our life. We talk about this idea of envy, and that's wanting what others have. Envy isn't a what, it's a who, right? Envy is about what a person has, that that this person has this, and that robs me of my joy, right? That's what envy was. We talk about greed, and that's about the idea of insatiable appetites. Right? our appetites for more, and it's not just about food, it's not about money, it's about everything. We talked about this idea of gluttony and seeking fulfillment in things. Gluttony is looking at this object, this thing, to kind of satisfy, which is really a spiritual hunger. We looked at sloth, which is spiritual apathy. Right? Remember, the seven deadly sins are a spiritual diagnostic tool. Sloth isn't about you not getting up in the morning to go to work or your class. That's a whole different problem. Right, sloth is spiritual apathy. If we have stopped growing in our faith, we looked at anger. We talked about misplaced defensiveness. This idea that some anger can be a mask that we wear, that we rather than kind of fighting for the oppressed and the weak and helping them, getting angry at the oppressors. And again, that's a misdirection of where we need to go. And of course, last week we looked at this idea, lust, which is the pursuit of pleasure. As we have looked through the series. We've been talking about the seven deadly sins, but by talking about the seven deadly sins, I've actually been trying to figure out what behavior should look like. We can be hard on sin, but soft on behavior. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you were to ask Christians or to to ask people in the world who perhaps aren't Christians, what are Christians all about? They would say things like shame and guilt or apathy and the cycle of sin, right? The cycle of sin is thinking about it, temptation and giving in, the grief, the guilt, and kind of going back and forth, back and forth, right? We talk about sin a lot, right? But what we don't talk about much is a transformation part, the behavior, and what that looks like is it's the exact opposite of this idea of sin, right? Transformation, growth, multiplication, and maturity. Remember I talked to you about that story about a friend of mine was a pastor who um, uh, preached a sermon, and, and a lady in his church, an older lady in his church, went on Facebook and said, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard type of thing. And he's like, how can somebody who's grew up in the church act and behave? Right? I ask myself the same question as a pastor, and we as a church have to ask ourselves the question, what does a Christian look like? What is this to behave like? How is this to act? What spirit are they supposed to have? See, I think what we need to understand here is the reason why the church has traditionally centered in on sin is because it's kind of a crisis point part. Now, what I mean by that is this, is that the church has kind of said to people that, oh, you are a sinner, and therefore you need to be saved. That's the phraseology, that's the terminology we've used. But the problem with that is that it actually didn't answer the question of what a Christ follower looks like. And people who have said, yes, I'm a sinner, have probably come to the point in their lives where something they've done, something's been done to them, has has brought them to this point of like, I need God. But what what we've never talked about is after. So I grew up in a tradition where you said the sinner's prayer. I don't know where that is in the Bible. I don't know what the words are, right? Do you know what the four spiritual laws are? Uh, no, actually, I'm not sure if I do. I do now, but I, growing up, I didn't, right? We have all this idea of like bringing people to this decision. Make this decision. But once the decision's made, well, that's, that's not important. We've never talked about the behavior after the decision's been made. The seven deadly sins, please understand the irony of this statement isn't lost on me we've been talking about the seven deadly sins but what i've really been saying to you is how have these sins modified changed your behavior because what are we trying to do here what exactly are we trying to do here what i would say to you is what we are really trying to do here is not be christians as in in the in kind of the census taking kind of check mark what religion are you but are you actually a disciple of jesus are you a disciple of christ um if you think about the word Christian versus disciple, you might actually be surprised that when Jesus talks about it, he says he uses the word disciple a lot more than any other any word. The word disciple appears 269 times in the Bible, primarily the New Testament. Christian appears only three times. So when Jesus keeps talking about what transformation, following him, all that looks like, he uses the phrase disciple. He doesn't use the word Christian. He never used the word Christian. As a matter of fact, the word Christian wasn't used in the church until two centuries later in a place called Antioch, right? That's where the phrase, that's where the term Christian came from. But when Jesus was teaching, he was teaching about discipleship. He wasn't talking about a decision. He wasn't talking about a label. It wasn't talking about a census, a little box that we check. He was saying, listen, if you want to follow me, you must be my disciple. He was more concerned about discipleship rather than the decision. He was more concerned about a transformation that took place in his life, from, uh, in anybody's life, at that point in time, onward. And that's what I want to ask, well, this is what I want to end off the series this morning with. Um, Dallas Willard, who is a phenomenal writer and thinker, says this about disciple. A disciple is one who, intent upon becoming Christ-like, and so dwelling in his faith and practices, systematically and progressively rearranges their affairs to that end. So Dallas Willard says, and it's really important, and the two words I highlighted there, systematically and progressively. In other words, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, something has to be changed. The systems of your life must be altered. It doesn't have to be drastic, but it does have to happen. But he also says this, progressively. In other words, from the day that you became a Christ follower or a disciple of Jesus, and whatever terminology you want to use, looking back on that, has there been growth? Has there been transformation because on the opposite, he says this in contrast, the non disciple has something more important to do with or undertake, such as lame excuses only reveal that something on their dreary list of security, reputation, wealth, power, sensual indulgences, or mere distraction <clears throat> and numbness still retains his or her ultimate allegiance that 's the opposite of disciple. We could almost take the seven deadly sins and say, you know, on that dreary list of anger, sloth, lust, right? We could have put all those in there. So whatever a disciple is, there must be a progressive change that transforms them. So the question you have to ask yourself is how long have you been a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, a Christian? And then the next question you have to ask yourself is what has changed in your life? What is altered in your life? If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14, because we're going to take a look at when Jesus actually kind of drills down on this uh, for people. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus kind of lays out for those who are listening what a disciple looks like. And we want to take a look at this passage as our kind of our guide and our pathway. So in Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, we, we see this little, this little moment here, okay? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Just so you know, Jesus had a bit of a different relationship with crowds, right? One thing you have to understand with Jesus, he could always attract a crowd. Thousands upon thousands of people came to hear this rabbi from Nazareth, right? This miracle worker, this, this, this castor out of demons, right? This guy always attracted the crowd, but Jesus had a very different relationship with the crowd, right? On the one hand, as we see there, he had compassion on the crowd, right? And we see this, right, in Matthew 9, right? Jesus sees a crowd, and he has compassion, and he says, they're like like sheep without a shepherd. So his first impulse towards the crowd is compassion. But look at the second thing there. Jesus never talked to the crowds without using a parable. A parable was, and we we know this because we've seen this in Jesus' teaching, a parable was a secret way of talking about the kingdom of heaven. So imagine this for a second, okay? You hear that this rabbi from Nazareth is going to be at this place. So you gather your family, and you head out, and you walk towards wherever it would be. It could be miles away, And, and it takes you hours to get there. In the hot Middle Eastern sun, you're walking towards this, and you finally arrive. And you look around, there's people everywhere. There's kids playing. There's noises going on. There's religious leaders over there huddled together talking. There's people over there who perhaps may not be religious, right? And this guy gets up and like, okay, that must be Jesus. And Jesus gets up and says, hey, thanks everyone for coming this morning. Turn your Bibles? No. He goes, "Um, so the farmer went out and he sowed some seeds. Some fell upon the path and they were trampled on. Some fell on the rocks and the roots couldn't take root and they died. Some fell upon the thorns. The thorns grew up and they choked them. Some fell on the good soil. And they they produce uh, crops 30, 60, 100 times more. He who has ears, let them hear. And he walks away. How disappointed would you be? How absolutely disappointed would you be with that moment? Because that's how Jesus taught them. Because Jesus knew what we have forgotten. That if you are actually hungry for the truth, you you go to the rabbi and say, okay, This cannot be a way of talking about farming, right? What does his disciples do? Jesus, like, like why, right? And what does Jesus say to them? I teach so that hearing they may not hear, seeing they may not see. Which, by the way, is a horrible way to teach. Although some of you may think about, I have a professor who's like that, actually, so uh, I know exactly what he's talking about, right? But Jesus says, I teach in parables. Why? Because he wasn't looking for converts. He wasn't looking for a decision because he could have had that. Hey, everyone. I want everyone here. Thousands of people decide to follow me. Instead, he threw us something out and says, if you're really curious, if you really want to know the kingdom of heaven, you'll come to me and you'll ask. And the third thing Jesus said about the crowds, he never trusted them. Because a crowd can turn into a mob in a moment. Because Jesus came on the Passion Week riding on a a donkey and people laid down their their coats and had these palms saying, "Uh, Hosanna to the king, right? This is a a, a messianic term that the Jews would throw out. This is our king. This is the next David. He has come. Hosanna, Hosanna. That same Hosanna turned into kill him. We'd rather have Barabbas. A crowd can turn into a mob in a split second. And Jesus knew that. Because what does it say? Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And I think that's kind of bizarre if you think about it, right? Because if you're a rabbi, if you're a teacher, if you're a religious leader, you want to start a movement. And if you want to start a movement, people help. People help. Jesus never played to the crowds. So when Luke sets it up there, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, he puts that phrase, large crowds. He could just say crowds or people. Or Jesus could start off by saying, turning to people, he said. But instead, Luke puts large crowds are following Jesus because Luke wants the reader to know and to understand what Jesus is doing here because Jesus is about to talk about discipleship. And the crowd's not going to get it, or they will, but we'll have to see what goes from there. So Luke 24, large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turned to them, he said. Now look what he says to them, okay? In verse 26, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Oh, by the way, Jesus, this is not going to look good on a bumper sticker. We are not going to sell uh, t-shirts with this on it. Hey, come follow Jesus and hate all the important relationships in your life. Not really the slogan we're looking for, right? And this is what's always interesting about people, and they say, you know, you know, Jesus is so loving. He is loving, but loving in a, in, a, in a transcendent way, right? Loving in a deeper way. So Jesus says to the large crowd of people, hey, everyone, thanks for coming out this morning. But unless you hate everything in your life, you can't be my disciple. Now, we talk about this word hate, and I don't want to go too deeply into it because I've taught on it before, but basically the word hate in the Hebrew understanding and the context Jesus is talking about is to love less, right? So Jesus is not advocating hatred towards these people, right? Because remember, on the other hand, Jesus says, respect and honor your mother and father. But in this particular instance, he's saying you have to hate mother and father because he's talking about something different, discipleship. The primacy, the primacy of Jesus has to be, he must be central, he must be at the top, or else everything else takes away. And I can, again, insert, uh, if anyone comes to me, does not hate lust, anger, sloth, right? The seven deadly sins. Uh, our lives must be secondary to our relationship to Jesus. The seven deadly sins are the warning signs. And that's the point of the seven deadly sins, as a diagnostic tool. What is it in your life that you are pursuing more than you are pursuing Jesus? And that's where Jesus says, listen, unless you hate everything in your life, and these things he's asking you to hate are not bad things. Because if Jesus says, I want you to hate injustice, we go, yeah. I want you to hate oppression, yeah. I want you to hate violence against the innocent, yeah. He doesn't say that because those things are easy to hate. He says, hate mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, because he's trying to say something. He goes, listen, all these good things are secondary to the one great thing, and that's me. Now, a bit of an audacious statement if you think about it as well, right? Jesus is asking this crowd of people, right? Let everything else in your life go to come follow me. And of course, then what does he say? Um, in verse 27, we see it. And this is where Jesus totally goes off the rails, right? He says in verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the reason I love this statement so much is because everyone understood the Roman crucifixion, the Roman form of torture, the Roman form of, of, of murder that took hours upon hours. Now, we read this passage knowing about Easter, the crowd didn't. The crowd didn't know this. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. But the crowd did not. So take away Easter for a moment and hear what he is saying. Look at this. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So the first thing he says, a primacy of his relationship with us. Right? He says, unless you hate all these things, you cannot be my disciple. But now look at the second thing he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The image of the cross in almost every Jewish person would have witnessed a crucifixion, right? Without going into too much detail, the point is that the person would actually have to carry this this heavy piece of wood, whether you believe it to be the, the entire cross or the cross beam, either one is still heavy. And again, it was ridicule, it was humiliation, but it was also agonizing, right? And Jesus says to the crowd, hate all these important relationships, number one, and two, carry your cross. And again, these people are like, is this guy, is this guy nuts? Like I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to patronize you, show up. But this is what you think you're worth for me to follow you? This is what you think you're worth. Carrying the cross implies daily death rather than a one-time crucifixion. Because when Jesus says, I want you to carry your cross, he's not saying, I want you to carry your cross to your death. He's saying, I want you to carry your cross. And so the listener automatically says, okay, this seems like a lifelong thing. This seems like something that has to go through time and time again. But the second thing, if we are carrying our cross, our hands cannot hold anything else. Our hands can't hold anything else if we are carrying our cross. And this is the point of being a disciple of Jesus. That unless you are dying every day to your ego, to your agendas, to the things in your life that can rob you of the primacy of Jesus, you cannot be Christ's disciple. And and disciple is exactly what Jesus is looking for. So in verse 27, he kind of uh, throws it down there. But now he gets this interesting part. We talks about counting the cost. And this is kind of interesting. So he uses two images of, of, of what it means to count the cost to follow Jesus. On the one hand, he talks about a person building a tower. And he says, if, if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, anyone who sees you will ridicule you in verse 29. So this is the cost. He says, before you build something, got to make sure you can afford it. Got to make sure you have the materials for it. But the second thing he says is if you go to war, make sure you have enough people. Because in this war, if you don't have enough people to fight against the other king, you will lose. Now, why I think this is kind of interesting is because he just said, okay, relationships, submit to me. Your life, submit to me. But now he says, now, sit down and make sure you understand. What if... okay I'm going to say this, so I had breakfast with somebody the other day this week, and he and he asked me a question we we were talking we were comparing notes, you know as Christians like, you know did you go there? did you see that And he said, Hey, have you ever been to a Billy Graham Crusade? and I realized something I hadn't He goes, when he came in the you know the nineteen nineties when when at uh, the sky dove, the thousands of people, I'm like, yeah, but I'm a Christian, so i't why do I need to go i I've never been right and he goes, oh i I went, it was great, and again no, no judgment. I was just like, I, I just I've never meant, i just one of those things, right? Uh, and so he said, he goes, well, it was amazing. People came there and all that. We have kind of created Christianity where we ask people to come to make a decision, to raise your hands and do that, and it's fine. But what if, before Billy Graham calls everyone forward, or what if, before the pastor calls everyone forward, he says, okay, everyone, before you decide to say yes, I need you to understand something. This decision you're going to make is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your reputation. It's going to cost you um, your comfort. Some of the relationships in your life you won't be able to keep. Some of the habits in your life you won't be able to take. And, and, and it's not just this decision right now. I know you're all emotional. I know you're crying. I know someone's humming just as I am. I get all that. But tomorrow morning, you have to decide for Jesus. Next week, you have to decide for Jesus. Next month, you have to decide for Jesus. And so on, and so on, and so on. Because what, the, what that would be saying is, make sure you understand the decision you are making. Because the decision isn't a one-time emotional event. The emotions are a part of it, absolutely. But it's the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. You have to choose Jesus every day. Are you willing to choose Jesus every day? And if anyone of you want to say that, come on forward. Right, Because Jesus says, listen, count the cost. Count the cost. Because there is a cost. See, we have made Christianity this kind of like, a, it's a decision, and then it's a lifestyle. Be, be, be a good person, you go to church on Sunday, it's a lifestyle. And if that was the case, then the early church would not have grown as much as it did. No one lays their life down to die for a lifestyle. There has to be something deeper that Jesus is talking about. We take Christianity as a decision when really it's a series of decisions. What are you willing to surrender for Jesus? And the second part there is, what are you willing to fight for your faith? And then Jesus wraps it up, this, uh, this part here, with verse 34 to 35. And he says this, Salt is good But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither. It is fit neither for soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Jesus uses salt yeast. He uses different metaphors kind of describe Christianity or being a disciple of Jesus. And he says this: salt. Now, in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, salt was valuable. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the word salary from, with salt, right? But what you have to understand, right, is salt as a chemical compound is very stable. Because we use salt in a purified form. They did not. They use salt from um, uh, marshes or, 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 or whatnot. And so salt was valuable, but it could be diluted. And so if salt got wet or salt got mixed in with dirt, again, Middle Eastern context, all, everything's dirt. It's one big sandbox. And so if you did not protect your salt, if you did not keep it pure, it got, it got diluted. So Jesus says, salt is great, Right? Right? Salt is great, but if salt loses its saltiness, what is it? It's just white sand. And then he says, well, what's it good for then? Throw it out. Look what he says. It is fit neither for the, for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Our faith, like salt, can become diluted. And according to Jesus, the diluted faith is useless. So Jesus starts off talking about, if you want to be my disciple... You must surrender every aspect of your life. People are like, okay. You have to take up your cross and follow me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Make sure you understand the decision because it's going to cost you something. Huh. And then he says this. You're meant to be salty. You are meant to be uh, life-giving and thriving. And if you stop being that, this faith that you have, that you decided at one point in time in your life. If you look like everybody else, if you act like everybody else, what is your faith really? And this is a theme throughout Christ's teaching. I could have chosen literally hundreds of examples through Christ's teaching, just three uh, to kind of show you exactly what Jesus is talking about. In John chapter 15, verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. What? Showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what's he saying here? How do you know you're a disciple of Jesus? You've got fruit. Mango, strawberry, tomato, it's a fruit. Uh, right, you, you are a fruit. You, ha- you have fruit. Why is it we look at people in the church today and go, well, they're very spiritual, they're very holy, they're very this. And they've got no fruit. They've got no Evidence of something else going on inside their lives. They look like everybody else. They spend their money like everybody else. They act like everybody else. They mourn like everybody else. Where is the flipping fruit? This is the question that drives me crazy because we have in our churches today, we have, we have lifted people up who, who have zero fruit, but because of their stature, their money, and all these things, we think, oh, they must be important. There was a study that we looked at in school it's called the Rise and Fall of the Three Methodist Movement. Sorry, Methodism. And basically it was this. Methodism started in the late 1800s as a revival movement. People were getting saved. God was moving. And, and, and people were, co- were coming for it. But all of a sudden what happened is we got these people. And people were giving money. And so what happens? And this is really important. The visionary slash Christ followers, disciples of Jesus, gave control over to the business people. Because they had to to manage the money properly. Now, I'm not saying business people aren't godly people. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying in the study that we looked at, they said there was a flip. The early grassroots revivalists, let's just go after God. Let's just share our faith. Let's just, whatever we need to sacrifice, we will. Switch to, hmm, how do we use these resources responsibly? Let's use resources responsibly, of course. But what's really important? Fruit. And this Methodism, it grew, it plateaued, and then it declined. Because the vision of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus was lost. And it's not just Methodism, it's, it's many other denominations. It's called denominational life cycle. There's five phases, in case you're wondering. Right? The first phase, grassroots, revivalistic, people getting saved. Second phase, let's organize. Nothing wrong with that. Third phase, let's create institutions. Fourth phase, let's create a denomination. Fifth phase, death. Now, I'm not saying organized. is not okay. Uh, We are part of a denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance in Canada. We love them, and they kind of like us. Um, But the point is this. Um, Time and time again, Jesus says, you know how you know a disciple? By their fruit. And why do we look at people's bad fruit and say, well, that's good. That's fruit. Remember I asked a question a couple, months, uh, a couple weeks back on sloth? When's the last time you led somebody to Christ? When's the last time you had a gift of the Spirit in your life? When is the last time that you lived sacrificially so somebody else could have something? It's gotten quiet here, I know that. This, I, I'm not here to hammer you over something. I'm just saying to you, we have to stop looking at lifestyle and reputation, and we have to start looking at fruit. Because what does Jesus say? You bear much fruit. This is how you show yourself to be my disciple. Discipleship isn't about saddest reputation, not about how long you've been in the church. My goodness, I have served in churches where people who are on the eldership team or the board have been in the church for 40, 50 years, don't have an ounce of the Holy Spirit in their lives drove me crazy. As you can tell, I'm getting a little worked up here. I will calm down in a second. Maybe not. Point is this. However Jesus looks at being a disciple, however Jesus looks at what it means to be a Christ follower, there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. And we have to stop looking at people who've been in the church for X amount of years, decades, who are fruitless. Remember I told you this before? As a youth pastor, youth pastor, youth and young adults pastor for 20 years, I survived, I got a t-shirt. I hated when an adult would say to me, I remember when I went on the youth retreats and God really spoke to me. I hated that statement. Because what they were saying is I haven't heard from God in a long time. I haven't felt God move in my life in a long time. I don't care if you have gray hair, no hair, Lots of hair. Jesus isn't done with you. And when you take your last breath, that is when he'll be done with you. Because then you will stand before him and he will say, he will say to you, well done, that good and faithful servant. Let me wrap up here. William Law is this. If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. We stand before God And we have this idea that God's going to decide as you stand before him. Well, I don't know. Is it good enough, bad enough? Ah, You know, when we stand before God, the decision has already been made. We make that decision every day. Every day we wake up, we decide to follow Jesus and submit every part of our lives to him. Or we follow something else. I love what C.S. Lewis says, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. It will be too late then to choose your side. The very end of the book called the Bible. Jesus stands. John has had the apocalyptic vision of Jesus. And Jesus stands last chapter of the Bible Revelation chapter 22, right? This is what Jesus says. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Do you know what he says there? I was reading this and I had an aha moment. The spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? The church. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Who are the two people saying to people who are thirsty? The church and the Holy Spirit. Because that's what's here right now. Jesus is left. He has left the stage. He will return. But who is left here is the spirit. And who's the spirit work through? The church. So who is it the people saying come? The spirit and the church. This is the mission of Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the mandate of the church today. And this is what we are meant to be. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you just a fan? Admirer? Well-wisher? Hanger-honor? But are you a disciple? And if you are a disciple, let's talk fruit. And if you haven't had fruit, let's talk about digging up some soil because that's what Christ wants from us. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to walk amongst us, to die on the cross for us, just so we can have a pretty okay life, to modify our behavior, but to transform us from death to life. Let's bow our heads Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I'm gonna give you a few seconds to think. I'm gonna get the ushers to get ready. We're gonna celebrate communion this morning. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up as well. I think celebrating communion in this moment is absolutely perfect because we've just talked about a discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And I've gone on and on and on and on about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But I was careful about one thing. The words I told you about discipleship, they come from Jesus. They're not from our church motto or mission statement or like that. They're from Jesus. The words of our Savior himself say, a disciple is somebody who bears much fruit. We've looked at the seven deadly sins, and the point wasn't to emphasize the sin, but to think about where we are with Jesus. Have we lost our way? Have we fallen asleep? And whatever other metaphor you want to becoming unsalty, We are meant to stay salty. And in this moment, I just want you to have that opportunity to think, to pray, to meditate. Maybe the question you just need to ask yourself is, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? I'm gonna invite the ushers forward. They're gonna hand out the emblems, the uh, the juice, the goldfish or rice cake if you're gluten intolerant. In this moment, the work student is going to lead us through a, a, a song. Just take it for a time of reflection, hold on to the elements, and we will celebrate together after they're done. the fact that I, I never tell the worship team what I'm speaking about. I, I never tell them my topic. I never tell them anything. I just tell them that uh, just put together your worship service. Hopefully it's with God and that uh, it will lead it. And I just love how this morning as Victoria's put together the worship service, it's exactly the theme of what I was talking about. And again, that's just a God thing. We kind of go, yay, yay God. We are living our lives on this planet and day by day God can seem so distant he can seem so far away I wonder if the disciples uh, thought the same thing with Jesus that here's a Messiah finally and we're going to have years upon years he's only 30 he's got another 20 years remember lifespans weren't that long uh, back then we've got such a long time and Jesus knew his time was drawing short Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, disciples, which is one of the most sacred meals that the Hebrews, the Jews, can celebrate together. Jesus takes the bread and he says, listen, this is my body. He celebrated Passovers with him before and he's never done this before. This is my body, he tells them. You don't know this now, but in a couple of days, It's going to be broken for you. And I do this willingly as a sacrifice for you. Remember when I told you to take up your cross? Well, I'm the type of leader who does it first. I have to show you the way. This bread is my body broken for you. Let's eat. And then he takes a cup and he uses a term talked about it before. It says, this cup is a new covenant. Covenant's words means new promise. The promise is this, is that when we fall, when we fail, God is right there to pick pick us back up again. That when we ask for forgiveness, God is right there. The seven deadly sins series wasn't about to hammer you over the head about how, how, how horrible you were or how horrible I am. It was a series to say, look at your soul's And ask yourself, are they as healthy as they could be? Health in in the natural world, reproduction is a part of it. And spiritually, that principle applies as well too. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood, a new covenant for you. Let's drink. For every time we drink this cup and eat this bread, we remember Christ's sacrifice until the day he comes. Let me pray with you. Holy Spirit, we say come, not just now, but tomorrow morning when we wake up, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. God, I pray that you would transform us. And God, for those here in this room who have stagnated in their faith, have become unsalty, God, I pray, just like we just saying, set a fire once again in our lives. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are an all-consuming fire. Consume the things in our lives that distract us from you. Consume us from the good things in our lives that distract us from the best thing, the great thing in our life, that is you. Jesus, we lay our lives down once again for you. We pick up our cross and we follow you. God, please find us faithful. Please find us fruitful. Let it be said of us, God, that we live our lives resembling our Savior, Jesus. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your compassion, which you bestow upon us time and time again. I pray, God, that that would help us to grow in our faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.